a stranger with a gun came upon two teens taking pictures under a rising full moon. But violence is only the beginning of this story. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are. And this is a big one. I'm Amy Donaldson, and I've spent my career talking about how lives are undone by violence. The Letter is a podcast about how lives are remade. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Where KSL offers Utah deeper insights on the news. Host Boyd Matheson divides rage from reason and elevates the conversation on issues crucial to our community. On KSL News Radio 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. As we've been reporting, the United States Senate voted today to confirm Judge Katanji Brown Jackson to the Supreme Court. The vote, of course, was 53 to 47, mostly along political lines, but her confirmation process cast a, an interesting light, in my view, on how these debates take place in the United States Senate, in the Judiciary Committee, and what it is that actually makes someone worthy to take a seat on the nation's highest court. Uh, is it qualifications, or is it their judicial philosophy? Uh, to help us uh, wrangle through all of that, Thomas Berry is a research fellow in the Cato Institute's Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies and managing editor of the Cato Supreme Court Review, and he joins us on the line. Thomas, thanks for jumping on with us today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Uh, so it's always interesting. Uh, I, I was thinking of just the last two confirmation hearings and uh, when uh, the Republicans uh, were working through Amy Coney Barrett, uh, they talked about her qualifications, 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 and the Democrats were questioning judicial philosophy. Uh, and now that she was on the other foot and uh, the Democrats were talking about uh, Judge Jackson's qualifications, qualifications, and the Republicans had shifted to judicial philosophy. So break that down for us. What does that really mean? Mean, uh, to to the rest of us, and uh, are we looking at the right things when we evaluate these people to be on the Supreme Court? Yeah, it really is a, a debate and and kind of a schism that we're seeing in the Senate right now about what should be the standard. And frankly, if you're talking about qualifications, you're essentially and you're saying that should be the only bar. You're essentially looking at did they go? Did they do well in law school? Have they had a, a quality varied career in the law have they excelled at at all of the jobs they held before they were a judge you know are there are their opinions well written you're you're looking at the basic standards but you're not asking yourselves would i agree or disagree with the votes they're going to take on the supreme court necessarily would i approach interpreting the constitution in the same way as they would whether that's through original meaning through original intent or more of a living constitution approach so uh, exactly as you said the party of the appointing president always focuses on qualifications because that's frankly a bar that essentially every nominee has met i would say the only nominee in recent memory who really failed because of the qualifications benchmark was probably harriet myers during the george w bush administration uh, everyone since then has met that qualifications bar, but it's judicial philosophy that leads met most of the opposing party now to vote against them. Yeah, and so let's break that down just a little bit for our listeners uh, as we talk about the judicial philosophy and kind of the, I know there's lots of nuances, and it seems to me that once uh, someone actually lands on the bench, uh, that philosophy uh, is a little easier to see, and it usually ends up being disappointing to whichever party 
nominated them because they they tend not to always uh, get uh, what they thought they were going to get in terms of those rulings, which is a good thing, I think. Uh, but break that down right. for us in terms of that philosophy. What are the what are the camps and schools and lenses that we should be looking through? So one of the biggest um, debates is how much should you look beyond the text, whether it's the Constitution or a statute. So for the Constitution, the originalist, original meaning camp, which was championed by Justice Scalia, it's now championed by Justice Gorsuch and Justice Thomas on the current Supreme Court. They essentially say you look at dictionaries, you look at uh, usage at the time any constitutional provision was passed, whether it's the original in 1787, the Bill of Rights in 1789, 14th Amendment in the 1860s, etc. And you don't go beyond that. You don't look at the practice after it was enacted. You don't look at what would cause the best result, etc. And then the opposing camp, what might be called purposivists, uh, Justice Breyer actually is the biggest uh, proponent of this. Uh, they, they look more at what was the original intent and what was the what was the purpose of a provision and what result would be most in line with that intent? So, in other words, they'll sometimes say, OK, they the framers didn't necessarily anticipate this problem. But if they were confronted with this question today, what outcome would they most agree with? Um, and then on the flip side, Scalia would rebut that by saying you can't really determine intent or determine what the framers or Congress would have wanted because it's a diverse group of people and they may have wanted different things. The only thing we know knew they agreed on is the text that they enacted, again, in a constitution or a statute. So that's the debate. And, and what's striking during the confirmation hearings is that at several points, Judge Jackson essentially said that Justice Scalia has won that debate in terms of who commands the majority of the court right now. In a lot of um, textual interpretation cases now, Justice Breyer loses eight to one. Um, and so I think Judge Jackson, soon to be Justice Jackson, is aware that the way you win a majority on the Supreme Court is by making originalist arguments. Yeah, we thought that was interesting. Uh, she had uh, several interesting exchanges with uh, Utah Senator Mike Lee on that very issue in terms of the the words and the meaning and, and the intent where they seem to be in agreement uh, on some of that uh, textual approach, which, uh, again, they disagreed, obviously, on other ph- philosophical things. Uh, but on that point, they seem to, to have some interesting agreements. Uh, as, as you look at Judge Jackson as she prepares to take uh, her place after, of course, uh, the this session is over and she's sworn in, uh, what are some of the things that uh, you think may surprise people uh, in terms of how she uh, might carry things out when she is seated on the bench? So I'm going to be looking most closely at a case that's flown under the radar so far. It's called Sackett versus EPA. It's one of the early cases of next term. And this is going to be the first big test of how she approaches administrative law um, cases. So in general, there's there's perhaps a stereotype that judges on the left, judges who are more progressive, tend to be more deferential to agency rulemaking. Uh, Judge Jackson on the D.C. Circuit uh, actually imposed a fair amount of scrutiny on on some um, agency rulemaking uh, ende- endeavors, especially during the Trump administration. So I'm curious to see uh, how how she continues that approach uh, for rules made by both Democratic and Republican administrations. This is a case about the EPA, a rule that uh, adopted a very broad interpretation of what counts as the water of the U.S. So essentially any wetland, uh, any puddle or creek, uh, not just navigable waters. So is she going to be more deferential to the agency's rules 
or is she going to be a bit more strict and looked at and look more closely at the text of the statute itself and what's the best dictionary interpretation of a water of the United States? Um, if she sides uh, against the agency, I think that's a sign that uh, that would be a great sign that she's going to give serious scrutiny to agency rulemaking and not just be deferential. Yeah, uh, we yeah that is a very good thing. Uh, I think there's been uh, a lot of deference to some of those uh, agencies, and uh, especially when Congress has kind of failed to do their job by leaving out big uh, swaths of text and just say, you know, we, we passed this great sounding law and, and now we give power to the agency to decide what that is, what that means, what the penalties are, and, and to carry out those penalties. Uh, it be really interesting to see how she, she comes down in some of those cases. Anything else you're watching for in, in kind of the early cases that might come before her? Well, there's, there's some ambiguity. She uh, said during her confirmation hearings she's going to be recusing from an affirmative action case dealing with Harvard University, and that's very understandable. She serves on the alumni board of Harvard, so she was involved with, um, you know, reviewing these policies. It's not clear she's also going to recuse from a companion case dealing with the University of North Carolina, a public mm-hmm. university. So that's one thing that I'm looking for is will she recuse from both, um, given that these cases are closely entwined, or will she try to draw a distinction between those two? Um, there's also a big case next term about the right uh, of um right of conscience and not participating in speech um, that endorses same-sex marriage by someone who doesn't want to, in this case, a wedding uh, planning website. So that's going to be her first big test on uh, how she interprets First Amendment rights um, and rights of conscience and how those interact with things like uh, statutes requiring sort of equal accommodation to public services. Uh, great insight. Thomas Berry, again, research fellow in the Cato Institute's Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies and managing editor of the Cato Supreme Court Review. Uh, Thomas, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. All right, we're going to step aside for a quick commercial break. Coming up, uh, there's a new bill that could get Congress to stop passing the buck on those responsibilities to those alphabet soup agencies, at least partially. We're going to talk about it coming up next. Stay with us. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear-gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen.